Welcome to the Progression Health Podcast. I'm here with Tyler Yasuda and Natasha Barnes. Tyler, do you want to introduce yourself and then Natasha, you can go and we'll kick it off. Um, sure. Uh, Ross, thanks for having me again. Uh, Cliff Notes, I competed in natural bodybuilding a handful of times, powerlifting a handful of times. I coached full time, coached Ross for a little while. And uh, recently-ish, uh, major injury, a uh, pec major tendon rupture, a uh, full rupture off of my humerus uh, surgery to repair not super ideal situation with the surgery. And then I am now 16, oh, 17 weeks post-surgery. So uh, well on the road to recovery, but, you know, not nearly there yet, but we're making baby steps. Very good. Yeah, good to hear you recovering. And Natasha, what's uh, uh, a little bit about you? I am Natasha. I'm a um, doctor chiropractic. I'm also a strength coach and I'm a climbing coach. Um, I'm a competitive powerlifter and also a rock climber. And I mainly help rock climbers like introduce strength training to their training routines and um, help rock climbers mostly with um, injuries. But I also work with like some powerlifters and other types of athletes as well. The multi-talented. So... (laughs) You had a, a pec injury somewhat similar to Tyler's, not severe. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about that? Uh, what happened? And Yeah, Yeah, sure. Um, I was doing weighted dips. And if you guys are familiar with the Rogue uh, dip station that you can attach to a squat rack, yeah. um, it's pretty wide. Yeah. I'm a very small human, so it's very wide for me. It feels like a wide grip bench almost like when I'm doing it. Um, so I have to kind of like choke up as much as I can without hitting the, um, the dip station while I'm doing them. Um, I think that's part of why I got injured on them was because they're so wide for me. Um, but I was doing weighted dips as the end of a session and, um, was kind of in a grumpy mood and like wanted to quit, but was like, come on, like, don't quit. Like, just push Mm -hmm. through it. You're going to be, you're going to be fine. Get the session done. Uh, and I remember like my second to last rep, I went for a dip and, um, I had like a weight belt on and stuff. I don't remember how much weight I was using, but they were weighted dips. I went for the last rep and I, it felt like my clavicle, this doesn't make sense, but it felt like my clavicle, like kind of like rolled over or something. And I was like, that was weird, but it didn't hurt. So I was like, that was a really weird sensation, but like it didn't hurt. So I'm going to do my last rep. Did the last rep, had the same sensation, was like, huh, that's weird. I don't know what happened there. And then a little while after the set, after the session was done, my chest was like a little sore, but it kind of just felt like, oh, I probably like strained something in my chest from doing weighted dips. Um, And then the next day I woke up and I had like black and blue on the top of my chest it was bruised so I was like oh all right well tore some of my pack um didn't get any imaging because there wasn't any reason to I didn't have any like um didn't look like I had any like balling up of the muscle or anything like that um so just continued training because usually with situations like that with muscle tears they're they're pretty vascular muscles and so they heal pretty quickly especially if you continue using them it sounds really counterintuitive but like you can train through a strain most of the time even if there's um symptoms and discoloration and we we can talk like more about that later but um so I just I continued training through it and um obviously had to like modify some of what I was doing like including like weight and range of motion on bench press um but yeah three weeks later I hit a bench press PR uh and then it just yeah it just got better and better and better and and it's never been an issue since so wow that's wild that sounds like yeah it should it should be a lot more painful than it was so we talked about uh your injury already tyler in the last uh, episode so i'm gonna assume you know that's already covered but uh just uh i guess quickly you can just fill in natasha on what happened and then what rep was your injury because Natasha's was the second to last rep, it sounds like. Oh. Yeah. So kind of twofold question. Well, I was I was actually responding to a really nasty email. I was getting way too into it, right? And I hit the enter key really hard. And then my pec just went. No. I was bench pressing. Uh, it was only a one rep set anyway. So it was the first rep of my one rep set. Um, so the last rep. Also the last rep. Good point. <laughs> Final rep. And then, it, it, yeah. I. It's interesting because I actually made it to 
the concentric like part way up, like maybe a third of the way up before it went. And when I was like doing my reading after, you know, as you do, it seems like it's most common that that would happen. If it was a bench press, it would be on the eccentric or like during transition when you change directions. But yeah, mine was part way up. And it was just a, man, it was a wild feeling. Like I felt the muscle just sling across my chest. Um, and I don't know that it was like that painful. It definitely hurt, but I think it was more so like the, uh, like knowing what it meant or like, you know, basically guessing fairly certainly what that would mean for training or lack there for the moderate to distant future. Um, that was like where my mind went immediately, but like, yeah, just the feeling of it, like it's kind of swinging across my chest was just so unnerving. And was it the last rep or, okay. Was it the, the last set or what, where was it in terms of your, your workout that happened? It uh, would have been a top set and there would have been a back off look after that, but obviously the back off look didn't happen. Um, and it's, it's strange too. Cause like it, I felt phenomenal, like the entire uh, session. Um, I felt phenomenal the entire training cycle previously. Uh, that day was like a little bit stressful, but like really that's not out of the ordinary. Um, so like, I, I really wish I could like pinpoint and say, like, okay, here's like a few reasons why I think this might've happened, but like, I still struggle with that now. Like saying like, you know, even speculating. Um, as to what I could have done differently or maybe should do differently in the future. Yeah, so it kind of makes me think, Natasha, for your injury, was there anything that you think led up to it or that contributed to it? Yeah, probably like stress, um, maybe going a little heavier than I should have on the weighted dips. Um, and then also just like not listening to my body at the time. Like I knew that like the last couple of reps probably were going to be a bad idea, but I wanted to like finish my program as prescribed. And so I just pushed through it. Um, but you know, sometimes you don't know, sometimes you're like, oh, well, it'll be fine. And then it is, but sometimes it's not. So it was a good learning experience. <laughs> How much do you think that mattered? Like you mentioned the, um, the rogue dip station, how it is, it kind of like tapers in, right? But you can't quite yeah. get all the way forward. If you did, you'd kind of just hit your head on the on the rack, right? Yeah. So how much do you think that mattered? Like the equipment not quite fitting you the way it want, you wanted it to? I think you it think was a big, are... I think it was a part of it. Like I, I get like a huge pec stretch on yeah. those dip stations. And I think if it was like actually set, I used to set it up. Sometimes we had like parallettes and I would mm -hmm. set up this whole situation with like the bench press benches and the parallettes yeah. and like get it so it's like the right width for me and like mostly feel it like in the front of my shoulders and my triceps you know but on the rogue station it really is like it feels like a huge eccentric stretch on my pecs um so I mean you know it's I guess this, we could just consider it a different variation so wide wide <laughs> <laughs> wide grip dips but um yeah I don't know maybe it wouldn't have happened if I was in on a station that like I was better fit for, but those don't really exist. I have to kind of like make my own because I'm so small. So for, for perspective, like how, how tall are you? I'm five, two. Okay. So for people listening, then like, would you say that may be a thing to watch out for? Cause there are pieces of equipment machines, especially where there's a range of adjustment, but I, I frequently think that the engineers designing them may not lift. So like they, I, they're really well engineered from like an engineering standpoint, perhaps, but as far as fitting them to somebody who's like five feet tall, all the way up to like six and a half feet tall. Uh, I think it's frequently the case where it fits the six and a half foot tall guy, but not, you know, shorter individuals necessarily. Yeah, totally. So maybe just picking a piece of equipment that you fit in better, or maybe easing into that type of exercise a little more slowly. Um, yeah. I don't think at the time my training was auto-regulated either. Um, I think it was just like I was doing was what was on my training program. So um, yeah. at that point in time, I was just like, well, this needs to be done. So I'm here to do it. <laughs> yeah, that makes me think of like that drive to like get stronger and to push yourself is very useful. But it's like, is there something to be said for undershooting just to kind of protect against that and to have like more longevity and I guess a lower risk of injury. Is that like a reasonable approach or would you lose, I guess, potential gains, do you think? I mean, I think for something like that, especially compound movements, like having your program auto-regulated is really helpful. 
and leaving a few reps in the tank is always a good idea. It's like not only going to keep you further away from injury, but it's also going to make the training more recoverable. Um, if you're doing like isolation work and stuff, I know for from my hypertrophy standpoint, it can be better to get closer to failure, but that doesn't mean you have to go to actual failure. Like you can leave a rep in the tank or something. Um, and then if you're new to training, like, you know, um, leaving a few more reps in the tank is probably fine also. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I think auto-regulation is a really helpful tool for, for training and for preventing injuries. I've definitely been injured less <laughs> now that, um, now that I do auto-regulate my training and kind of listen to my body a little bit better and I've learned like some of these lessons that you learn early on. Um, but you know, you can't always prevent all injuries. Sometimes, you know, you could have the perfect situation and it, you're still going to get injured. So kind of like your situation. <laughs> well, I'm sure there's something I don't know that I, I could have done better. I'm just, and I'm determined to figure out what it is, but maybe I'll learn today. Um, Kind of digging into the auto-regulation thing, how does that look uh, for you like in your program or programs that you're writing for the people you're helping? What does that look like specifically? Yeah, so I like to use like reps and reserve. So mm -hmm. if, if you have like a prescribed set, for example, like let's say we prescribe like um, a set of eight. So you can correlate RPE with reps and reserve. So RPE 10 would be there's no reps left in the tank. RPE 9 would be there's one rep left in the tank. RP8 would be two reps left in the tank and so on and so forth. So it's kind of inversely correlated. Yeah. Um, and that makes it a little bit more objective for people to kind of rate RPE instead of just like how it feels. Um, so like, let's say we prescribed like a set of eight at RP8. So that would technically be kind of like a 10 rep max intensity, but you're only doing eight of those reps. So you're leaving two reps in the tank. So you're working, you're warming up and you're working up to an intensity that you could do the eight reps, but you feel like you'd only have two more reps left in the tank before you might fail. Um, so you're, we're always leaving a couple reps in the tank. Um, and the nice thing about that is that you can take advantage of days where you're feeling really good and you can increase the load if you're able to do that. Um, but you can also meet yourself where you're at on days where you're not feeling as great or you might be yeah. more stressed out. Um, which is really important um, because your body doesn't really know, you know, what weight you're lifting. Your body only knows the stimulus you're giving it. So as long as you're getting the right stimulus for the session, you're going to be fine. You're if we zoom out, you're still going to be making gains, even if you have to go lighter on a certain session um, because you are getting the correct stimulus. Um, and like I said earlier, it just keeps you further away from failure. It keeps the training more recoverable. So I like to use RPE for people, um, and teach them how to use it because you can have like better good days and better bad days when you use auto-regulation, which is a way that I like to think about it. Um, and so you can use it for selecting load. Um, you can also use it for volume. So you can put like fatigue stops on sets. You can say like do as many sets until it feels like RPE nine and then stop or right. RPE eight and then stop. Um, so you can put like a fatigue stop on volume. Um, or you can have people do like an AMRAP until RPE, whatever. Um, so there's lots of different ways to like use auto-regulation. But um, yeah, I mean, it's easy to learn. We're already thinking about how hard things feel when we're warming up anyway. Um, and I think it's just like a valuable tool for people. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good reminder. We can go closer to failure on isolations, but not on compounds. Or I'll just speak for myself and say that's just how I like to train. And just something I'm not clear. I'm kind of confused on. So using ORP and ORI reps and reserve together. So if, if, if a set was, uh, let's just say 10 reps or P eight, I would say to myself, I can do two more or, or it's two reps in reserve. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Okay. So I guess, do you do anything differently? Would you explain it differently, Natasha, or is that just how you use it? explain rpe differently or explain you use them in combination how do you use them in in combination in my head i would use either or yeah so i think it's easier to learn reps and reserve for a lot of people but uh, like for me rpe8 especially if i'm like getting close to a powerlifting meet and i'm doing singles or something like that sometimes it can be more of a range like it's not like oh i had that many more reps left in the tank, I could still go up and wait and it would feel about RPE7 for me or RPE8. 
Um, so I feel like when you're a little more advanced, it's, it's a little bit of a range um, and it doesn't necessarily have to correlate with like reps and reserve. Um, it can be kind of like your personal rating of RPE once you've had more experience. Um, but also like because I prescribe different types of exercise, um, I don't like to confuse people and say, okay, this one we're going to two RIR, this one we're going to RPE8, this one. Mm. So I like I like to just use RPE across and I just teach my clients how to like use RIR for like things where we're doing like multiple reps. But for example, like for climbing, we do a lot of isometrics, especially like um, for finger training and forearm training. So we don't, because of we're doing isometrics, we're not doing reps. We're doing like, we're holding for a specific amount of time. So we can still auto-regulate that um, either by feel like that feels like about RP8 to me, or I feel like maybe I would have a couple more seconds left in the tank. Same with cardio. Like you can, you can prescribe cardio using RPE like this. I want you to do 20 minutes of steady state. It should feel like RP6 for you. So it just makes the language more consistent throughout. Um, but they're essentially like a little bit different because one of them, RPE scale doesn't necessarily have to be correlated to R to RIR, if that makes sense. That's a great point. Ross, do you ever find yourself on your uh, runs thinking RPE scale? So I have a, a run coach who he was using it before and I was like, I don't, this is, I'm, <laughs> I'm too like, you know, new to this to try this. But uh, yeah, actually um, we use like a one to 10 scale just because there's an app and basically it just says rate that. And uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's so tricky though, because, you know, like for example, I did uh, a 5k time trial uh, two days ago and my heart rate didn't get, it didn't hit max. And uh, it's it's just so interesting to compare the data to the subjective feeling. So I think it could apply. But again, I think like with weight training, it would take time to practice it. You couldn't just slap it onto a session and be like, yeah, I'm good to go. That was an eight. And that's 100% accurate. It would take many sets and sessions uh, to perfect. And then I think I like the idea of using RP um, in combination with RIOR. And having both, uh, you know, individually or together and having just kind of more ways to gauge the intensity because it is really tricky to gauge. I think like Natasha was saying, um, as a lifter becomes more advanced and like their ceiling of performance gets closer to their, like their physical capability, like what their body is capable of doing. I think it, it is more reliable that they will rate accurately, but it's also like much more important, right? So if you had somebody say, okay, that was an RPE eight, but it was actually like a nine and a half, uh, and you're, you know, you're running a program that way, or you're updating your program that way, that does become very tricky. Have either of you guys ever had trouble with that, where somebody that you're coaching or working with, um, I guess, how do you manage that? Because it is the scaling, no matter how you do it, RPE, RIR, one to three, one to 10, it is subjective, right? And how each person perceives that it's impossible for any of us to know exactly what they feel. We can describe it all day long, but it's really tough. That's definitely something that I've struggled with in the past is making or being confident that each person, you know, an RPE 10 to me may be a different feeling to Ross's RPE 10, right? How do you, how do you work around that? It's definitely, it definitely takes some practice and like some thinking about for people who are new to it. Um, cause it, it is a skill that needs to be like dialed in and like, you can't always dial it in until you've had like multiple exposures and like, right. uh, practice at, in different situations. Like if you've never gone to RPE 10, how do you know what that is? You know? Exactly. Um, so, you know, for a lot of my clients, it's just a matter of like practicing. Um, I incorporate like RPE audits in some of my programs that I do with people, especially if they're like really not sure. Um, if they're, if they're grading it accurately, I can usually help them if we look at video and stuff and we can calibrate it that way. But people like, um, to kind of know. So sometimes we'll do like an RPE audit, which is usually just something like I'll have people work up Lo the lower reps you use, the more accurate people typically are. And also right. the higher the RPE because it's closer to failure. So right. usually I'll have people do something like, okay, well, let's work up to like a set of like four at RP seven or set of three at RP eight or something like that. 
they'll work up to what they think that is and then mm-hmm. we'll rest and the following set I'll have them am rep it and yeah. um and then we'll say like okay how many reps did you actually get like were you accurate did you get more reps than you thought did you get less reps than you thought how can we use this information for next time for you mm-hmm. um so and then actually also prescribing higher RPEs for people, like maybe prescribing RP nine or ten occasionally, so that they can experience that, because um, those are all like learning opportunities for people. But generally, like my advice for people is, um, you know, it's it's probably better to undershoot than to consistently overshoot. For consistently <laughs> overshooting, that's going to be a problem because eventually you're not going to be recovering from the training as well. You're going to yeah. accumulate a lot of extra fatigue. Like you're not going to get stronger by like forcing weight on the bar. You're just going to get more fatigued. Um, and so if anything, it's better to undershoot. So, you know, get as close as you think you can. It's if anything, undershoot, because you can always go up the following week if you decide like that was a little too easy. Um, and then it also just builds momentum for like a training block. If you're undershooting at the beginning of the block, it gives you a little momentum to go up like each session. Um so, and, you know, if, even if you're undershooting, you're probably going to be getting enough stimulus to get stronger or to, you know, for hypertrophy, uh, if anything. So it's not like, oh, if you undershoot, it's a big problem because you're just not going to get anything out of the program. As long as we're not like massively undershooting, where like someone has like, you know, 12 more reps left in the tank on a set or something like that, then it's probably yeah. fine. So, you know, uh, one idea that I really like, uh, actually, Ross, I don't remember. Maybe you can remind me how, if we've used this together. Is uh, giving lifters like guidelines within their auto regulation, where like uh, sometimes we'll give somebody a range of resistance alongside their difficulty target, where like they know like you're gonna fall within this weight range somewhere. Where with that weight, weight range kind of depends on how you feel today. And that way, as they get used to that scaling, or as they get better at that scaling, they still have like bumpers, if you will, where it's like you're gonna be here, like just so you know. And then you can refine this over time. And then that still allows us to use that data set from like that session or that week uh, retroactively to adjust for future blocks as well. Uh, but a really good point that you make is I think so often like from the client end or from like the athlete perspective, it's how can I progress fastest right now? But like zooming out from like the coach uh, perspective, a lot of times it's more like how can we progress continuously? without having to stop every once in a while because we're not recovering or because of an injury, whatever else, right? Because, I mean, inevitably it's going to happen. They're going to be under-recovered. They're going to get injured anyway. But if we can minimize those instances, it's really kind of like a sport or powerlifting. I would say bodybuilding as well. Maybe climbing, maybe you can tell me. Uh, it seems like it's a sport of attrition. Like the people who are the best are not the best because they progress the fastest. They're the best because they've progressed for the longest amount of time on an on an record, basically. Yeah, that's such a good point. Like with all of my clients, I'm trying to get them to realize that like the goal is to keep training consistent, consistently. And the longer we can keep you training, the better off you're gonna be. So if we can make training like recoverable and make it so that you can continue training and you don't require tons of deloads, you don't require like time off from injury like the better off you're going to be the more hours you can put into your training those are the best athletes that have the most hours under their belt so how can we make training more sustainable and it's probably better to you know undershoot and like not try to make the fastest progress possible and that's what's going to help you stay consistent i i'm definitely somebody who loves training and loves pushing really hard and I will hit RPE 10 any day of the week <laughs> when, if left to my own devices. Like I love a good, I love grinding reps out. I love trying as hard as I can. I love putting more weight on the bar. But like when I did that, when I first started lifting um, or even just up to like, you know, a few years ago, um, that's where I would run into trouble eventually where like all of a sudden I would hit a wall and require like a huge deload or I would get an injury or I would feel burnt out from training. Like I wouldn't want to train. Um, because I was just kind of like consistently like pushing that line all the time, you know? Did, did yeah. you ever feel like um, training that way, like so intensely early on? Did you ever feel like it almost made it hard for you later on to convince yourself that you could get away with training at a lower intensity? Oh, absolutely. Like, <laughs> I mean, yeah. on the one hand, I know what RPE 10 is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but on the, on the other hand, like, yeah, like now, so now I... 
especially this last like probably year I've been on a program that's like a lot lower intensity and I've just committed to it like okay I'm not gonna overshoot I'm gonna stay in the pocket like I'm gonna it's gonna feel like I'm not training hard enough but I'm just gonna do it and like my my bench or my um squat my deadlifts are taking off right now yeah um and it's because I'm able to accumulate a lot more volume at an intensity that I can recover from it doesn't feel like I'm grinding on anything which like sometimes kind of sucks because I love that but also I love being (laughs) able I love being able to put more weight on the bar because I'm actually like getting stronger you know Um, but but consistent progress yeah totally and so I'm like okay I'm fully bought in now like I just need to stay in the pocket more often (laughs) it it definitely seems to be the case too like uh recently like past five years published research that people who are like at a higher level of competition whatever it is tend not to need uh as frequently intense stimulus to continue making progress but so let's say aside from keeping yourself sub max do you have any other like general recommendations for people trying to avoid injury yeah i mean the big ones i mean people are always like you know worried about the stuff that's going to give them like 0.1% of a benefit but i think the big ones are like being on an appropriately dosed program first of all um second of all like making sure that you're getting quality sleep so recommendation for people is seven to nine hours of quality sleep every day um and making sure that you're eating to support your training so in climbing we have a really big issue of people like trying to stay lighter for climbing because um historically it's been known as like a strength to weight sport and so people want to keep their body weight down and because of that they're like restricting calories Um, But they're also kind of hampering themselves because you can only like get lighter and lighter and lighter for so long before it's starting to like impede your ability to recover from training. Um, So I'm always trying to get people to like eat enough calories to support training um, as well as eating enough protein. Like if you're a strength athlete or you're a bodybuilding athlete or you're, um, you know, anybody who wants to like have or build muscle, like you need to make sure you're eating enough protein every day. Um, and a lot of people don't realize what that is if they've never like tracked macros or are not aware of anything like that. Um, so just getting to getting people to up their protein um, is a really big one too. Um, and then helping people figure out ways to like manage stress outside of training sessions is also really mm. important because um, your body doesn't really know the difference between like emotional stress and physical stress. So if you have a really stressful job or you have a really stressful situation going on outside of the gym, your body literally just thinks you're training hard all the time. (laughs) And so you're not going to have the bandwidth to like, you know, go into the gym and like PR every session if that's what's going on outside of the gym. And some of those situations are manageable and some of them are not, you know, like if you have a newborn at home, can't really change that um that situation but like there's other things that people can do to like manage stress outside of training sessions that can be really helpful outside of that like other stuff is probably not going to give you as much of an improvement as this other stuff and if you don't have this other stuff managed well then it's not worth looking at anything else so big pieces right yeah the majors focus on the majors yeah were you so, preparing for like a powerlifting meet for, is that why you were doing like one, like singles or? Yeah. So I was, uh, I was closing in on, I, I didn't have a date set, but I was hoping to compete in a meet. It would be my first meet since mm. 2014. The last time I competed actually, not to blow smoke on my own ass. And I know these numbers mean nothing anymore, but I held the record in California for my, uh, my weight class and it got just destroyed over the next few years. And <laughs> you know, like life, business, whatever else uh, kind of distracted me for a while. Then I, I came back to a point where I've, before the injury, I was as strong as I ever, stronger by a good margin than I ever was. I was hitting numbers that I, I confidently believe I could go to any state level meet and win. Um, and I was going to try to do a meet and a half marathon in the same week. Um, probably a meet Saturday and half marathon, like next Saturday. But that was a big deal to me because like I'm an idiot and I want to make things way harder than they need to be. So I want to do both at the same time, but it's okay. Like thinking about it sometimes it's still hard, but like I have plenty of time. So long as I can get back to a point where I can train somewhat normally and 
maybe that's a big ask, but if I can, then I'll, I'll try again later on, right? It's just going to be a matter of time. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I was really looking forward to getting back on the platform. Uh, I was real excited about that, but it'll still be there years from now. It's okay. Yeah, it'll still be there. You'll get back to normal training too, for sure. Yeah, that makes me think of how important is it to keep on training when you do get injured? Because that's kind of something that you mentioned, Natasha. And I know, Tyler, you said how important your training is to you. And even myself, I'm really trying to instill in myself that whenever I feel a flare up that, uh, you know, it's how I respond really that define how, how well I recover. So, um, and then yeah. there's actually even research to like back this up that, you know, uh, staying active and, and doing your daily activities really has a big benefit, uh, to the recovery process. So yeah, Natasha, you mentioned it. How important is it to continue training and how do you kind of approach that with clients when an injury arises? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's super important. Um, I mean, not only is it going to help prevent you from deconditioning the rest of your body, um, there, there's probably something to be said about continuing to stay active that can actually help with the healing process. Um, so for me, like a lot of times when I'm helping climbers with an injury or even like power lifters with an injury, there's ways that we can work around whatever's going on. Like, whether that's like modifying how we're loading that limb or if we have to completely stay off of it, like in Tyler's case, he got surgery. So he probably had to stay off of the shoulder for a while. Um, we, we can train other, we can train the other limb. Um, we can also train like lower body and, and do other things that are tolerable. Um, like in Tyler's case, you know, he could do SSB squats, you know, probably not too crazy to hold the SSB you don't, you all don't, you don't even have to hold it. Like you could do hat fields yeah. or something, um, or machines or something like that. And with climbers, it's like, we have a lot of options. Like if they have a shoulder injury to modify the style of climbing that they're doing or the angle of the wall that they're on to make it tolerable, um, or to just like start training other parts of the body so that they don't completely like decondition when they're recovering from the injury. And sometimes like for, with lifting, it's really easy because you know, sometimes it's as simple as just modifying the load. Like, um, I had a shoulder injury a couple of summers ago, um, from benching and I didn't stop benching. Like I kept benching, but there was a point in time where like, I could only bench the empty bar. Like that's all I could tolerate. And I just kept doing that until it felt like I could do more. And then at a certain point I could tolerate 95. And then at a certain point I could tolerate 115. And like, I just kind of stayed at 115 for a really long time. Like my shoulder didn't want to really do more than that. And then all of a sudden, like my shoulder turned a corner and I was able to just kind of like ramp it up really quick after that. But I never stopped training that movement. I just reduced the load to something that felt tolerable. So for some people, it's as easy as that. Um, for other people, it could be like modifying the range of motion. Like another example for bench presses, if the bottom of the bench press feels really painful for a shoulder or even like an elbow, we could do like a pin press where you're not going all the way down. Um, or you could do like a board press. They have like foam boards you can pop onto the bar that make it so you don't have to do the full range of motion. And you can do that and train the range of motion that does feel tolerable. Um, or if that's not working, then, you know, we can train a completely different movement that does feel tolerable. Um, like for example, if like a close grip bench press doesn't feel good, maybe a wide grip bench press would. Or if a barbell bench press doesn't feel good, maybe a dumbbell bench press does or incline or, um, you know, cable, cable press or anything like that. We can find a different way to train the same body part and at a way that feels tolerable. Um, so there's lots of modifications. Or if you're like post-surgical or something and you can't be using that limb, we can train the other limb or we can just train other parts of the body while we're recovering. So. Yeah, yeah. If, and if I, I can I, add in, go I'm ahead, sorry, go yeah. ahead. <laughs> Just an interesting thing that that reminded me of is there's, I should probably look up what study this is. There's a study I was reviewing a couple of weeks ago where it was uh, injured lifters, whatever, uh, only able to train one side. Pattern of gene expression was still affected on the injured, unused side. So like, like you're saying, like if you could only, like for me, if I could only press on my right side, I'm still going to do that because in a very small way, but still some way, it'll help me prevent any additional atrophy on that injured side or the unused side, right? 
But that it's really funny. interesting how the how the body works like that. Yeah, that's yeah. funny. I, I feel like I, I can't quote the actual study. I can't remember the name of the study. I think there might be more than one of those studies where you train the opposite surely. limb and, yeah, it, and it helps it helps the limb. But yeah, like that's one thing. And then also pain is really funny. Um, and being able to like engage in a movement or a range of motion that feels painful or threatening for your body can help reset your nervous system and retrain retrain your brain that that movement or that position or that load is safe. Um, and like an example of that is like, I'll have people come in with low back pain and I'll have them deadlift. And depending on like their sensitivity level, the deadlift could look different. Like it could literally look like them picking up like a five pound kettlebell off of a chair, or it could look like them picking up 225 off of the floor. Um, when I used to work with Ross actually at a studio in SF, people didn't realize that I was doing rehab with clients because they were like, oh, cool. That was a sick deadlift that your client just did. I was like, yeah, he came in with low back pain. He just walked out without back pain. <laughs> he was like <laughs> deadlifting, like, I don't know, 225 or 275. And people were like, oh, that's rehab. Like, I thought you were training people. Um, and I think that's important because like, if you can um, show people that they can still use their body um, and they can show themselves that they can still load their body or use their body. That's going to help retrain their brain and it's going to help decrease their sensitivity to pain. So that's also important for the healing process is to like graded exposure to a movement or position or load is part of the rehab process. And that's also part of why it's important to engage in exercise and movement when you're still going through an injury. Yeah, it's, it's essential. Yeah. I remember actually when I was working with Tyler and I, was rehabbing my shoulder after I got surgery. There's there's a lot of it's not just like there's one study on training the the strong limb versus the injured limb. There's like a lot of research out there if you just do a quick search. So there's definitely a lot to be said for it, and it really made an, uh, an impact on my own recovery and even just kind of making it feel normal, like you're not completely broken and incapable. Like there's got to be a symbolic benefit to it, but. Yeah, Tyler. So with your injury right now, you're like kind of in the thick of in the thick of it. You know, what does your training look like? Are you training one limb? You're just going and doing, you know, the strong side. And yeah, what, what's going on? Um, really quick, Ross, just in case this is helpful later, if it's not cut this out. Uh, the study I was citing is uh, Andrushko et al. 2017. I'll send it to you later on, just in case you want that. Um, Great. My training currently. So I'm cleared to squat. I can only high bar. So we're, we're basically trying to add complication to everything so I can limit load, right? So I have a high bar sleeveless pause squat, uh, no lower than four reps at a time. So uh, that means for me currently I can do like 405 ish, uh, comfortably. Uh, it's just, it is still kind of tough. Like I feel weird being in this position here on that left side, that left shoulder. And it's not even like my pec. It's like my posterior shoulder capsule. That's like real tight. And it's just because I haven't been able to use this range for a really long time. Um, I'm back to deadlifting again with complications. So uh, like tempo variations, pauses and stuff. Uh, the, my care team, they thought I was joking because they cleared me to deadlift one day. I went to deadlift right after that. And the first day back, Instantly, I was no, in, no hesitation to straighten. <laughs> no, for, really. I, I left the clinic and went to the gym. And the first day back, because we have very specific guidelines, like, yeah, like yellow light is uh, noticeable discomfort or even like the slightest, like approaching pain, basically. Uh, and then anything more than that, red light stop, right? So I was not planning any specific load. I was just doing pause triples up to whatever felt like reasonable with no none of those indications. I got up to 495 that first session and I reported back to my, my care team. They're like, what the fuck are you doing? That's way too much weight. And I was like, no, like I promised, I promised it felt like, like we talked about, like everything was as we said. Um, and I'm like a little bit insulted because I, I think they just thought that I was not that strong, but it's okay. Eric, <laughs> if you ever hear this, I'm still insulted. Gotta let him know. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, the deadlifts have been um, more or less good. Today was actually, I deadlifted just before this and it was a little bit weird. Like I, I noticed a little bit of, I can only describe it as like tingling, like toward my pec uh, at lockout on a set with like 535. And like, I, I called it there just because like, I don't gain much by doing the rest of the session. I had like two more sets left. 
and like what I could stand to lose if I just, you know, power through is, is, is pretty significant. So um, aside from that, like most of my limitations are just on that left side, like pressing work. I, I still can't overhead press on that side. Um, but it's mostly like posterior shoulder stabilization. Like if I were, I have range to get up here. It's more so stabilizing um, into that degree overhead. It's still kind of tough. I just got cleared to dumbbell press on this left side, but it's hilarious because I got really good at single arm dumbbell pressing here. So I can do like the heaviest dumbbell at our gym is a hundred. I'm doing sets of 14 on my right. And then in this hand, I get a 15 pound dumbbell for oh sets of 35. <laughs> and then we've got 35 reps. I can barely count that high, right? But we've got planned <laughs> progressions where it's going to be like, you know, five pounds here and there just to make sure we're baby stepping it. And like, very very carefully approaching a load that is kind of working capacity and how many weeks are you post again remind me i am this is my 17th week post surgery you must be way ahead of schedule like the doctors must be like what is going on or like you know your people might uh, no not really so if everything were normal about the surgery that then i'm pretty much on track as far as uh soft tissue healing timelines and like natasha could speak to this probably better than me but i believe the timeline for connective tissue is a little bit longer than for like muscle, right? Um, and my, my rupture was primarily tendinous. Like it was, okay, if you could imagine the distal, the farthest end of the tendon that's on my humerus, and let's say that whole tendon uh, or where it's mostly tendon is like, pretend it's an inch long. It broke in the tendon about two thirds of the way across. So I had two thirds still attached to my arm, one third attached to the muscle. And then the two thirds that were on my arm were kind of just obliterated, so they couldn't use it. Um, so their their primary concern, long term, is that there was not much tendon left to use in the first place. So they sent sutures through, like uh, it was a little stub of tendon. A lot of the sutures went through, like the distal end of my pec major, and then they had that attached then to anchors in my humerus. Um, so there's like not not as much connected tissue there as they wanted there to be, and that's kind of the uh, the worst of it, I guess. That's the thing that makes it a little bit tricky or hard for them to predict what's going to happen going forward. But I, I mean, as far as timelines, I think we're pretty much, it depends what you're re referring to, but there's a, uh, on the off chance, somebody listening has the same injury. Uh, there's a Mansk manuscript from uh, Wichita State, I believe. It's probably the most comprehensive manuscript on the recovery process for this injury. Uh, me and my care team, we've referred to that pretty frequently as far as timelines, but also acknowledging that, um, again, not trying to blow smoke or, or conflate what I'm doing. I, I think that I'm probably healthier uh, than like an average person, just slightly, <laughs> or at least Stronger I Stronger for sure. <laughs> you know, right now, an average like 10 year old could probably outpress me on my left side. So there's that. <laughs> Um, I've, I've had so many of my clients tell me recently too, like I could probably out bench press you right now. I was like, yeah, you probably could <laughs> enjoy it while you can. Yeah. <laughs> I am so proud of you guys. <laughs> I'm, it's finally paying off. I'm a huge, I'm, I'm guilty of ignoring surgeon guidelines when I work with patients. I mean, obviously like, you know, we're going to work within normal tissue healing guidelines, but sure. Um, <clears throat> I'm, I generally will work within the client's symptoms. So, you know, after like six to eight weeks, we're probably going to be bench pressing or at least doing dumbbell benching. And we're going to obviously start light and we're going to work up to something that feels tolerable. And then we're going to progress yeah. slowly from there. Um, so I feel like a lot of those guidelines are um, like really conservative. Um, and yeah. a lot of times people that make them up, don't like they're not trainers and they don't they're not coaches they don't know anything about strength and conditioning and they don't um you know uh, any weight sounds like a lot of weight to them so like I've had clients who are post-op post-op shoulder um and will get like instructions from their surgeon on like the second visit or whatever they'll be like yeah don't lift anything above your head over 10 pounds and I'm like well she just overhead pressed the empty barbell last week so yeah <laughs> uh and and you know she'll be fine she won't have symptoms it'll feel totally fine um yeah. and then and we'll just go off of like symptoms you know um so i don't know um 
I think a lot of those guidelines are a little bit conservative. Um, if you have like a weird surgery that like nobody knows a lot about though, like, you know, it might be worth sticking with some of those like more on the mark, but yeah. I, I tend to agree though. I think you're, you're right that they're conservative. And I think that, I mean, perhaps some of that has to do with liability. I don't mean like from like the insurance standpoint, even just like people don't want to be responsible for you if you should push faster and get re-injured. Um, yeah. How do you feel about the statement? So I've heard this more than once in regards to my recovery that pain and discomfort may not be useful indications for me as a stopping point because uh, they were asking me a lot about what it felt like when um, this all happened. And I told them like, I felt totally fine. Great, if anything, coming in. And then just, you know, all of a sudden it went and they're like, well, you know, it's a good chance that you will, if you were to re-injure yourself in the same way, you wouldn't feel anything until you know, it all went to shit or until it all broke. Um, how do you feel about that statement? Does that seem reasonable or does that seem too conservative to you? I mean, maybe. Um, sometimes we can't always predict injury and we don't always know why they happen. And like, you could be doing everything correctly. Like you could be on a good program, you could be using great form, you could be, um, you know, hydrated, you could be like, you know, recovered. You, you could be, all the things could be lined up and like you can still get hurt and that's because injuries are super multifactorial there's lots of different reasons why we might get injured and there's like a, a cool graphic of that in the case of like there's a graphic that came out and a study i can share it with you if you want later yeah. um specifically for low back pain and it was like this flow chart of like what contributes to people having pain and it's like massive <laughs> um and so 13 gigabytes yeah, it's crazy. It's all of these different things. The weather. Um, so, you know, it's like, it is like weather because we human beings are dynamical systems and we're not going to be able to control everything, you know? Um, so maybe, um, I think after an injury like that, you're probably going to have a little more awareness around that shoulder and that your chest. Um, I think that like, if it's something where you want to do another powerlifting meet, you want to be like maxing out on your bench press it's just something where you would need to ease into the appropriate intensity to be in a powerlifting program and spend some time there um because yeah. you know for the injuries like that are going to happen if the tissue is getting overloaded so the best thing that we can do is expose like you know build your tissue capacity in that area and expose you over time to those intensities so that you're as prepared as you possibly can be for something like that um and you know i think going off of symptoms and going off of like how things feel for you is is reasonable um but you know like i said we're not always going to prevent 100 percent of injuries and like i've had injuries where like i knew that was going to happen and like <laughs> i had a feel i had a feeling something was maybe going to happen or i knew i was fatigued or i knew um and other injuries where it just came out of nowhere and it felt like everything was going right everything was correct like nothing seemed wrong or out of the ordinary and like you can still you still get injured like i i tweaked my back doing my first deadlift warm up like not <laughs> fatigued not fatigued not stressed out in good form super lightweight first rep of my first set of the day tweaked my back um was in like high back pain for the next 8 to 9 months after that yeah. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it's going to happen. And I think the best thing that you can do is prepare yourself as well as you can. And then also just be prepared for handling injuries, you know, like. So would nope. you say, I guess either of you guys, would you say that injuries are kind of inevitable competing or, or training at a very high level, high intensity? Definitely. Mm -hmm. I think injuries are the price we pay for not sitting on our asses. And Let's say pain is more for me. It's a guarantee. Pain's guaranteed. Injuries yeah. is it, it, you're, I would say, you know, it's fairly unlikely. Like, I guess kind of when I say, think of an injury, it's kind of like, are you going to miss a session because of an injury? That would be kind of, are you going to be injured and miss a session? You know, it's it, kind of getting into like, I don't know, the nitty gritty of it, but yeah, you're definitely going to experience pain. It's going to hurt. But just kind of one thing that you said, Tyler, about, um, you know, trust in pain and, and the, the team asking, can you trust pain? It's kind of like, you know, I love going into the gym and proving myself kind of wrong, you know, like, yeah. can I trust the pain or, you know, it's kind of like testing that boundary, you know, 
So instead I know of being this about you, yeah. <laughs> so instead of being like, you know, oh, can you trust your body to tell you when it's in pain and when it's, you know, breaking down? It's kind of like, yeah, what about like surprising myself and saying like, here's what I think I can do. And, you know, I have, I have to do five by five or whatever. So that, yeah. that was one thing. But then let's just say we go off the assumption that you can't trust the feedback of the pain or, you know, injury. It's kind of like, where does that leave you then? You know, what, like, you know, what would you do with that information then, you know? Yeah, you know, I... I had a hard time. I still haven't effectively explained this to my care team, I don't think, but I, I, I think you'll understand this. This is probably kind of what you're describing. It, it's almost, it sounds mental, but like you almost enjoy that to some extent, like going to the gym and like to some extent brutalizing yourself in a controlled manner uh, to, uh, I mean, partly because you know it, it's a source of growth, both mentally and physically, but it's hard to describe that feeling, like the positive aspect of that feeling to somebody who's not been there. And Again, that that my description, my poor description of that to them probably makes them think like, oh, maybe you can't trust uh, your own feedback, physical feedback, because you might somewhat enjoy feeling in pain. And I guess that's tricky, though, because on the other hand, so, okay, in the gym, I feel like my pain tolerance may be high. But then also, I remember telling them, like, post-surgery, like, that's the most pain I've been in maybe ever. Like, I... I don't know how many times in my life I've cried from being in pain, but I know the night after surgery when the nerve block wore off, that was one of them. <laughs> it was bad. And uh, again, I, I don't remember how many times in my entire life that's happened. Um, but they're like, you know, like there are like, you know, other people who've done this surgery too. Where like they don't think it's like nearly that painful. Like, well, maybe my pain tolerance is low then. I'm not sure. <laughs> but it's, it's so tricky to tell. I'm not, yeah. I don't know how to reconcile those two ends of the spectrum, I guess. I think pain is really subjective, you know, and like everybody's experience with pain is going to be different. And that has to do with a lot of things, um, including like your beliefs about pain and your expectations about pain. Those things can literally affect how much pain you have, you know? Mm. So like an example that I've read is like, if you're a piano player and you get a paper cut on your finger, that paper cut's probably going to hurt more because that paper cut impacts your livelihood it impacts yeah. how you can play it impacts how it feels to play but if you're just a normal human being you need a paper cut it's like oh that hurt but then you just like ignore it the rest of the day and it's fine you know and it's because you don't have this expectation about how your fingers should need to perform or how they need to feel in order for you to perform a certain way um, and so your expectations really play a large part and so after surgery or when you have a significant injury like and I've been in this place too. And, and you probably felt this Tyler where you're like, Fuck, like am, am I ever going to be able to lift the way that I want to? Will my shoulder ever be as strong as it was before? Will I ever get to be able to compete again? Like what's going to happen after the surgery? Is it going to work? Like all these different things probably going through your mind as you're recovering and that nerve block wears off that can like play into it, you know? And then on top of like, you know, can you go to work? Like, are you going to be able to make money to support yourself? Like all these things that can play into when yeah. you have an injury that can affect your pain. Um, and so you have to take that into consideration a little bit. One of the things that I tell my clients also is because some people are like, okay, my pain tolerance is really high. Like I can push through a lot of pain and not realize that I'm like causing damage or that I'm pushing myself too far. And other people are like, I'm really scared of pain. Like, I'm worried I'm not going to push myself at all. Like, how how can I manage that in a rehab or a training session? Usually what I tell people is like, a little bit of discomfort is probably okay. Like, as you're going through the rehab process. And in fact, we have some research that shows that pushing into some discomfort is going to get you better outcomes than keeping rehab completely pain-free. And I think part of that is because we're actually stressing the tissue and challenging the tissue adequately in the way that it needs in order to like recover like if we're not stressing it enough your body doesn't know to lay down more collagen there your body doesn't know that you need to be stronger in this area so it's important that we're stressing it so that can come with a little bit of discomfort and usually what I tell people is mm -hmm. as long as it's tolerable for you during the session it's probably okay um, and everybody's tolerance is different but um, like as long as you're not pushing it anything that feels super scary or super threatening or something where you feel like it's getting worse and worse and worse throughout the session, it's probably okay. 
And the way to really tell is to monitor how your pain behaves in the 24 to 48 hours after a rehab session. So generally, especially with some types of rehab, it's normal to have pain after. Um, if you're dealing with like a tendinopathy or something like that, um, you can have no pain during the session because exercise can feel really good for tendinopathies. And then the next day you can feel worse. And then people are like, uh-oh, like I did something <laughs> bad. Um, and so what I tell people is like, let's monitor how it feels over the 24 to 48 hours after the session. And ideally what we should see is your discomfort going back to baseline within 48 hours. So if you're kind of returning to whatever your baseline is in 48 hours, we're probably good. Like that's a good sign that your body is tolerating that stress and is able to recover from it. Um, but if, you know, three days later, you're like, no, like it still hurts. And like, I, in fact, I have to, mo I have to modify my next session now because I'm feeling worse off. That's okay too. Probably means we did a little too much that the session before, but now we have some information about where that line is for you of what you can currently tolerate and we can work under that. So it's actually good information to have, even if you do overshoot a little bit. And as long as you're not doing something crazy, like going back and like one rep maxing your bench press again, uh, <laughs> or, or like for climbers, like, you know, jumping and latching something with one arm. So and tempting though. <laughs> yeah. Like as long as you're not going to the gym and doing something dumb like that, it's probably going to be okay. Like worst case scenario, if you do more than your shoulder can handle at this point, um, you're probably just going to end up with a little bit more soreness than you're normally used to. And that's okay. You, just, you know, take the next day or two off or take the next day or two light. And then now we have some information about where that line is for you. And we just work under it. Yeah. I, I feel like, no. yeah, you go to, go ahead. I feel like there's a kind of underlying element of like trusting yourself and your own kind of wisdom and trusting the body to recover. And like, you're definitely not going to get better by like, you know, you know, sitting on the sideline. That's like, a, that's like a, the, the only thing that I could say for certain with an injury is like, you're not going to get better sitting on the sideline, um, you know, in most cases. And like, if anything, it'll do more harm than good. So it's like, yeah, kind of like getting back out there, trusting yourself off, but, you know, being mindful and without a shadow of doubt, like modifying what you're doing to your new ability. Yeah. You know, some of the stuff that both of you had said just then, um, I'm kind of thinking that over in the context of like that night that I came home from surgery. And I wonder now if like me crying from the pain was really just that, like, I, I have to admit, I'm not so prideful that I won't admit this. I have to admit that I, I think I was very scared, like not, so at that point, there were no arrangements made for physical therapy. I had no idea who I was going to be working with, no idea what the process was going to be like, really. Uh, all I knew was that the surgery took about five times as long as it was supposed to, and that's never a good sign. Um, and I, I think a lot of that could just be like, perhaps, uh, fear, a little bit of identity crisis as well. And I, I wonder if like, knowing everything I know now, if I had to go through that all over again, if like it would almost feel different uh, post-surgery if that amount of pain or that, that perception of pain would be different. Um, and I have to guess that it probably would be, but that's, that's so tricky. I, I, I get what you're saying, Natasha. I feel like it is important for people to maybe have some knowledge base and kind of like at least know where they would go uh, to seek help or expert advice should something happen. But it, it's so hard to convince people that they need that until they actually need that, right? Um, so, I mean, what would you say to people? Like, obviously, if they're, if you're accepting clients and everything, and you have the bandwidth to manage, like they can come to you, right? Um, but let's say if, uh, if not you, how would somebody go about, or how would you recommend they go about finding that help when they do need it? Yeah, I think it's really important to talk to somebody who maybe understands like the sport that you're trying to do. So, you know, if you're someone who's like a bodybuilder or powerlifter or weightlifter, like talking to a physical therapist or even like an orthopedic surgeon who understands the sport and understands the demands of the sport. Part of the reason my business exists is because when I started my business, there weren't very many people who worked in the rehab field who understood the demands of rock climbing and what rock climbers were going through. Um, like, you know, people would typically go, oh, my God, you're doing what? That sounds crazy. Like, you should just 
stop climbing, you're like hanging off of the ed- edges of cliff. Like that sounds crazy. And so the advice when I got injured when I was really young was to just stop climbing. And be and that's because Great you advice. know it sounds really extreme <laughs> to people. You don't know what's what the you know what's required of the sport, but because I have a an understanding of the sport and I've done it myself. I understand ways to work around certain injuries. I understand like what the constraints can be um, or what the variables are that we can modify so that somebody can continue training or can work around an injury. Um, And same thing with like powerlifting, weightlifting, bodybuilding, just general, um, general person who does strength training. Like if you talk to somebody who's like a physical therapist or your surgeon who has some experience with weight training, they're going to have an understanding of like how to modify around that. Even like a, even like a trainer um, who is experienced like Ross is going to have an understanding or an idea of like how to modify around what's going on for you. So uh, my recommendation is to try as best as you can to find someone who has some knowledge of like what you would like to be able to do because they're going to understand better how to get you there. Um, when you don't do that, like a lot of times people just go to classic physical therapy and like, um, you know, they'll be given the little sheet with the little <laughs> handout, the little band exercises. And that's great place to start if you're post-surgical or you have a lot of symptoms and maybe that's all you can do. Um, or if you're just like a normal person who works at a computer that doesn't really play, put a lot of demands on your body, like that might be fine. Um, but if you're an athlete or you're somebody who wants to be able to do some kind of sport, uh, you really need to talk to somebody who understands the demands of that sport so that they can bridge that gap from, you know, you just had surgery to now you're able to do a powerlifting competition again. So that'd be my biggest advice. It can be hard if you're trying to stay with an insurance because not everybody's going to accept your insurance or yeah. even accept insurance at all. Like I don't accept any insurance. Um, so, you know, I, when people consult me, if they're really early on in rehab, sometimes I'll be like, okay, I want you to work with just like whoever takes your insurance for the next like four to six weeks until we're at a place where like you can do some of the stuff that I can actually help you with. And I'll be real with people and say like, okay, just go to that person, go to your hospital PT for four weeks. Soon as you get this range of motion back, come talk to me because that's a good sign. We can start loading whatever it may be. Um, so, you know, it, it still can be worth going out of network and talking with somebody. The way that I have things set up is like, I'm more of like a consultant for people. Like I'm not trying to like see them like, you know, three times a week for eight weeks. That's not really what I do. I'm here to help them to show them what the path is going to be to recovery and create a general outline for their path and create like a plan for their path and like, you know, check in at certain points um, because, you know, it's just not realistic for me to see somebody as often as you would if you were like in network with someone with their insurance. But yeah, anyway, long, long winded way of saying like try to find somebody who understands what you're trying to be able to do again. Um, if they have strength and conditioning experience, like that's even better because they're going to understand that part of it a little bit more. And like whether people like it or not, like strength and conditioning is part of the rehab process. And so if you're a physical therapist that doesn't, have a grasp on strength and conditioning you're really missing a big part of the rehab experience for athletes so yeah yeah um, i i really uh, admire that transparency to like you're saying sometimes an athlete might come to you and you, you just tell them that you may not be that useful to them yet but you know four weeks eight weeks from now i i really uh good for you i, I know you're running a business but i feel like very few people would be that honest in that situation yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, if I'm working with someone post ACL, it's like, cool. The first like four weeks is us just trying to get your knee extension back. Yeah. Like you, you can do that anywhere, you know, <laughs> but you don't have, to, you don't have to waste time and money with me yet because that's not the part that like you need pushing on any physical therapist can help you with that. So but a lot of people would be like, no, pay me $200 an hour. So I can tell you to extend your knee. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, maybe, maybe those are better business people than us. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, that uh, that feels like a good place to uh, to wrap it up. But is there anything that we didn't cover? Any kind of final message you guys want to leave people with? Yeah, All good. I, I go. I think we're good. <laughs> <laughs> we got a lot, uh, a lot done. Okay. I, I think, um, Ross. Real quick, one thing I will say is that I, I want us all to acknowledge that. It's frustrating as it is to hear, like, you know, uh, 
in-network PT or your mom or your grandmother say, hey, maybe just don't do that thing anymore. You guys realize that like we're the idiots, right? Because if you tell somebody, hey, I get, get injured doing this thing that I love doing all the time, I want to keep doing it. What does that sound like to a normal person? I'm not saying that we're wrong. I'm just saying that that does sound really dumb. <laughs> yeah, they, they probably don't understand how much it means to us. And also like a lot of people don't understand that like, yeah, like you might get injured pushing yourself. That's just what happens when you push your limits. Not saying you're just, you're bound to get injured and it's going to happen, but like it can happen. And that's a real risk of like pushing yourself to your limits. But understanding that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. If you do get injured, there are people that can help you. There are people who have been through your situation. Injuries heal, injuries get better. Um, so it's not the end of the world if you do get injured. And if you're not getting help, like finding your way back to your sport, you might just need to find, like I mentioned, somebody who does that sport that can guide you in that direction. Absolutely. And and there's no guarantees. Like if you're pushing yourself, the risk is, or the risk just can inherently go up. And that's, you know, sometimes just how, how it is. But, you know, we accept that risk because, uh, you know, we enjoy what we do. And, you know, even on the bright side, when we do get injured, uh, it's useful experience for work with our clients. So, yeah. yeah and there's also risk to not being active. Like, imagine exactly. if you didn't do anything, like you're still going to be in pain anyway, because you're not active. So pick your, pick your heart, I guess. Exactly. Choose your poison. All right. We'll leave it there. And uh, thanks very much, guys. Thank you.